and me wanting to be in control reacted quick enough to grab the handlebars as the bike was throwing me backwards and I pulled down the throttle even more. The bottom wheel spun out. I look at the speedometer, I'm going 65, 70 miles per hour. By the time I look up, I'm headed towards a utility pole. Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Andrew Hawkins, but hopefully by now you know me as Hawk. Now, this is our final episode of season three of Needing Dough, the podcast. And we're wrapping it up with a special episode of our mini-series, Branching Out. That's right. On Branching Out, I sit down with some of your favorite athletes who have moved on from their sports careers, created new pathways for themselves, and evolved into other successes. And our final guest is someone who went through an immense transformation on his way to becoming a successful storyteller and now one of the most popular ESPN analysts of our time. Now, before we get started with this conversation featuring former NBA player Jay Williams, please subscribe and review Needing Dough the Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Make sure you share with your friends, too, because we don't want them to miss out. All right, now let's get to it. I am excited to welcome the incredible entrepreneur and storyteller Jay Williams to this episode of Branching Out. Jay is the definition of how to bounce back. While playing basketball at Duke, he was named All-American for two years in a row. Then, in 2002, he was drafted second overall by the Chicago Bulls. So at just 21 years old, some people were saying he'd be the next Michael Jordan. High expectations. But then, a few months after his rookie season, a devastating motorcycle accident cut his career short and changed his life forever. Although he was close to giving up, he found a new purpose and turned it all around. He rebuilt himself as one of the sports industry's most popular media personalities and a multi-business entrepreneur. In this live conversation, which took place on West 125th in Harlem, New York, you'll hear us talk about Jay's winding journey, the lessons he's learned, and the things he's focused on today. All right, Jay, what's up, man? I'm doing well, man. Doing well. Had a long night with my kid. My kid was sick, <laughs> which means I was up all night taking care of my kid. So you're off of no sleep right now. Um, zero sleep. But you know what, though? I, I, it's, it's how I operate, though. I also feel like I'm better because sometimes, you know, when I, I, I see a lot of people that go to bed early or they wake up early, and my thing is I'm always trying to con- create. I think a lot of people just consume. Uh-huh. And I sometimes like having those quiet moments because it allows me to create differently. It allows right. me to spend time with myself. So I'm okay with it. You're good with it. I'm so you're okay used to it. not sleeping. Yes. Because you have 13 well, we jobs. Do, well, so that makes yes. Sense. Yes, I am the modern day James Brown. It's cool. We're working on it. <laughs> All right, so we'll they start. They don't even know who James Brown is. They That's have the no idea. Part. Zero clue who James. It's Brown cool is. because everyone listening to the podcast will know exactly who James Brown. I'm is. I'm with you. When my jokes don't land in person, it's all right. <laughs> on the audio version, they'll love them. All right, so <laughs> you grew up in Plainfield, New Jersey. I did. What was it like growing up there? Plainfield was interesting. Uh, Plainfield was a predominantly African American Latin town. Um, my mother was a guidance counselor at Plainfield High School. Metal detectors, a lot of gangs, things of that sort. I went to a town, because my dad worked at American Express in the city. I went to a school in the adjoining town, South Plainfield, that was predominantly Caucasian. So for me, there was an identity crisis growing up. I didn't know what I was, if I spoke this way, or if I was intelligent about an issue that had arose. Um, I was considered to be an Uncle Tom. I was called being white. Um, If I had played sports in the school I went to or dressed a certain way the way I dressed like this. I was being called ghetto. I was being called black. 
So I, I think there was really an identity crisis for me just being a young man associating. And it's weird how it's crazy you can associate intellect with a certain race, right? When right, you're that yeah. young. Um, so that, that's, that's the town I was born and raised in. Yeah. So that feeling of like not feeling like you belonged in either environment, how did that contribute to you putting so much into basketball? Because basketball was my safe haven. Yeah. It was the one place where it didn't matter if, you know, if I was black, if I was white, if I was public, Republican, if I was Democrat. Mm-hmm. They just accepted me because if you can hoop, you can hoop. So I didn't have to speak any words. I can just go out there and play. Yeah. And I, I love the attitude of you have to go out and earn everything. You have to go out and take what is yours. Um, and for me in my life, that's been – if I didn't have that at a young age, if I didn't have that identity crisis and have basketball, I think that's something that's embedded in my DNA because that's really set the foundation for my whole life. So what, what were your, some of your earliest memories of money or having it or not having it? <laughs> um, so one of my earliest memories of money – I didn't tell the producer this story. I told you I got some. Yeah, stuff switch here. it up on him, man. Um, so one of my one of my friends, his dad, um, worked for a company called. I thought the name of it was called Nihilators for the longest time. I did <laughs> find out about fifteen years later it's called Now and Later. Ah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, anybody who's ever been to the corner store, you know about <laughs> Nihilators. Nihilators. I call them the same. So <laughs> his dad would get all these packs of Nihilators, right? Uh-huh. And we'll get like. 15, 20, 35, 40 packs and would pass them out to the kids. So I started getting a couple of packs every single day. He would bring me and give me a pack, give me a pack, give me a pack, give me a pack. And then I would go down to a local corner store where we always hung out. And I would see that the corner store didn't have Nihilators. And I was like, man, let me go ahead and try to sell these guys some of my Nihilators that I got. So now I took him to the guy. I was like, hey, I got a couple of packs of Nihilators here. You know, do you want them? He's guy's like, yeah, sure, I'll take them. I'll give you $2 a box. I'm like, cool. <laughs> so I, I made like $20, right? And I'm like seven, eight years old, uh-huh. making $20. I then found out later that the boxes go for like three fifty, <laughs> And I was like, oh, he shortchanged me. But I think that was the first time at a young age, and my friends are trying to do things like that, just everybody was hustling. Uh-huh. It's the first time I saw like, oh, like this is how you can make money. Mm. But also it came out like I just don't want to buy things with the money I make. I actually kept my money underneath my bed, uh, which actually was the same story I had with my first NBA paycheck which wow. my accountant yelled at me for, but that's life. <laughs> All right, we're going to get to that. Yes. Tell me this. What was your, so that was your first experience in making money on your own. Yes. What was your first actual job? My first actual job is I worked for a pharmacy uh, when I was 16 years old. I was able to drive, and I delivered medicine for hospice. And it was, uh, it was the most humbling thing I've ever done in my life. Here I was, a sophomore in high school, Still wasn't being recruited by a lot of big-time schools. Um, you know, my, my high school coach told me I should accept the offer from Fordham, mm. which is a great school, but, right. you know, I wanted to be better than Fordham. And, um, you know, it, it's I got this job, and I'm driving around this stick-shift car, this little blue Penta car that I, I'm big in, and I'm literally handing medicine to people who are in the last stages of their life. And seeing that for a good three or four months – being my first job, uh, just put things into perspective about, okay, I'm worried here about not scoring 20 or not getting a good grade in class or, you know, some of my friends. And you just it, it just puts life into the right fixture. Right. Um, and, yeah, I did that for five and a half, six months. So what, what would you do with the money that you made? Did you have, like, 
the financial foundation, or I guess I should ask, what, what kind of lessons did your parents instill in you about money early on? I gave it all to my parents. I gave it to my mom and my dad. Uh, my dad worked at American Express when I was raised there for 20 years. So my dad would talk to me about things as if, you know, look, financial responsibility. You know, one of the things I always saw, especially as a young black kid, is I saw rappers, I saw entertainers, I saw people always splurging money. And I'm not going to say that I didn't have my moments. Right. Um, but the moments I had, they were set up specifically for that. They were saying, hey, like, and we'll get into that later. But I think it was because of the way my dad looked at things financially as far as always making sure there are systems of checks and balances. He spoke to me that way. I learned vernacular at a young age about investments, or I learned about little things about a checking account or a savings account. I learned about interest and about, hey, X amount of interest would be on my money if I kept it in a checking account for a certain amount of time. My dad spoke to me about things like that at a very young age. Mm. So at, at what age did you did it click for you that, like, man, basketball is something that I could... I could take to the next level. Not until I was like 17, 16, 17. I, I, I wasn't one of these young phenoms, man. You know, um, I was born and raised in Jersey. I played basketball at Newark for the Newark Rams, a lot of AAU teams. Played here for you know, New York City Broncos. Um, and I didn't get a lot of love from a lot of schools. It wasn't until 16, 17 until all of a sudden I started to get, I went to the Nike All-American camp. I randomly got invited, like one of the last invitees. And then I just blew up out of nowhere. Like I just averaged 17 assists at the Nike All-American camp per game. The next thing I know, I'm getting letters from Coach K. I'm getting letters from Dean Smith. I'm getting letters from Roy Williams at Kansas. You know, Kentucky was recruiting me, all these schools, and just like that. Yeah. So when you made the decision to go to Duke and you talked about your coach wanting you to actually go to Fordham, I grew up with guys, and I had a friend specifically that I grew up with um, who's literally sprouted up from 6'1 to 6'7 in a year. And you said I'm 6'7, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, exactly. You know, you're super tall, just in like my me. Own, in my own mind. Just two tall yes. guys sitting up here. Um, but a, a Division two school offered him, and, you know, they were living in the projects. They didn't have much money. Their, his parents never went to school, and it was tough for him to pass up on that, even though there was going to be more opportunities. So he signed with the first school that gave him a scholarship because his parents, in their mind, they are like, this is a free education, and we don't want to pass this up. So for you, what was that process and decision like, A, to pass up on Fordham, and then ultimately when the, the opportunity arose to go to Duke? Well, I went to all these different schools, and I met with all these different coaches. And look, a lot of people offer a lot of things. Obviously, uh -huh. the, you know, we have something now where kids are allowed in certain states to own their name and likeness. That's always been the case, man. Like, yeah. it's always been the business to look at it. My dad would always talk to me about that. One of my mentors in my life, a guy named Charles Grantham, ran the Players Union for a long time, would always talk to me about things like that. But the thing that got me with Coach K is that, first off, the school, right? K's like, I want you to tap into this alumni base. Like, we have a magnificent alumni base of people that are doing very powerful things within certain industries. Tap into that. And most importantly, I want you to leave here being a man, looking somebody in the eye, I'm not going to promise you you're going to start. I'm not going to promise you you're going to play 40 minutes a game. You have to come out here and take what's yours. And for me, having people give me things made me uncomfortable. Because I'm yeah. like, oh, okay, if you give me something, that means I have to give you something in return. Yeah, I owe you, yeah. What do I owe you, yeah. right? Uh, and the thing about him, he's like, I'm not giving you nothing. You have an opportunity. And I think he spoke to me that way. And that was, that was the life, that was a game-changing moment of my existence as a person. Yeah. Because then my dad was like, oh, this is how we're going to strategize this. 
We're going to start sending letters, handwritten letters, to different CEOs or C-suite executives, and we're going to invite them to games. And for the games that your mom and I can't come to or your mom can't come to, you have four tickets. We're going to take three of those tickets, and we're going to allocate them towards some of these C-level people. And maybe we go out to dinner afterwards, and I can't tell you how many people I met with that are still on the board, my personal board, to this day. Wow. So I, I think tapping into that has made the difference. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing and incredible foresight. Did finances play any role into your decision to Duke? How far ahead were you thinking? Were you thinking, man, I'm going to go have an incredible career at Duke, get a degree, and, you know, whatever happens after that? Or were you thinking, hey, this is one stop, and I'm, I'm going to the league next? I'll be real with you, man. I, I didn't know if I was going to make it to the league. Yeah. I mean, I, I became a McDonald's All-American National Player of the Year, but I was still a very insecure kid. I didn't know if I can cut at that level, cut it at that level playing right. starting point guard for a team that just lost a national championship the year before in 1999. There was this mass exodus. They lost Elton Brand, William Avery, Corey Maggette, Trajan Langdon. And all of a sudden, here I am, this kid who's never played the point guard position in his life. I was a power forward in high school to playing, wow. yeah, a 6'2 power forward. I can still get people <laughs> post work up in here, too. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a small guy mentality. You know yeah, what I'm talking it, about, man. I'm with it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I play point guard. So I didn't know if I believed in myself. And, um, but something interesting happened to me my freshman year after I started to figure it out. I started to recognize the business that was occurring around my sport. Mm-hmm. I started seeing my jersey being worn by kids on campus by random fans that I didn't know. We started doing signings where we had to sign over a thousand objects once a month. I started seeing my face or other Shane Battier's face being publicized on TV to sell a game. And you start understanding, oh, okay, this is how much the NCAA sold the rights for the tournament. You start, I heard about it the first time at 17, 18 years old, and I think I started to take notice of it for the first time as well. So here you are. You're seeing, again, your likeness and image all over the place. You're now this superstar. But personally, how are you navigating the world of finances in college? Because you're not getting paid for any of that. Exactly. Um, so this is a hypothetical story. Okay. okay. Give it to me. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, mm-hmm. a player who plays on a really good team gets four tickets to every game. Hypothetically. Hypothetically. Okay. Yep. Hypothetically, if that player finds a third party a person who isn't associated with the school or himself, a third party, essentially a broker, that could take those tickets on the market, put those tickets on the market, and sell those tickets for you without an entity knowing, then you would be able to have some amount of money, even though that would be considered an NCAA violation. Right. It's fascinating to me, the shoes I wear on my feet, the shoes that the school gives me, they smell like my toe jam, they smell like my hot feet. Uh-huh. but they're not my shoes, so I can't sell my shoes. So for a certain player, after you do this for a while, I was able then to take, people were able then to take that and invest that in certain things after they had graduated. So I, I think, um, look, there are certain ways, I think everything's going to become legal eventually. Um, there are loopholes to get around things. I may just talk myself into a corner for that particular person. <laughs> but, like, my thing is, look, these games are being seen by millions and millions and millions of people. And as much as we just had the SB 206 Act, 206 mm-hmm. Act and I give Mav and Braun a lot of credit on doing that on their platform, it's great to have individual license. It's not enough, though. We need group licensing. 
Like that's how you build the same kind of system that the NBA has. Even if that money sits in escrow, let players get it once they graduate, maintaining a certain GPA. There's too much money to be passed around here where you see these coaches that are making these, you know, five years deals worth $60 million, making nine, ten million million a year. Yeah. Okay. We'll get back to Jay's journey and learn how he started managing money at a young age. But first, all right, now let's get back to my conversation with Jay Williams. So, okay, so uh, you graduated in three years at Duke? I did. That's amazing. Was that the goal ahead of time or did you? No, uh, I decided instead of going back home after my freshman summer, um, you know, for me, home had a lot of issues. I always found a way to get in trouble. Uh-huh. Um, idle time was bad time for me. So I decided to stay down at school and I took summer courses. I overloaded my summer courses. I made a thousand shots a day. And also my sophomore year, I came back, I destroyed the game, had a chance to leave school early again. I chose to stay, overloaded courses again going into my junior year, um, got national player of the year my junior year, and then graduated school that year. At what point did you start to contemplate going to the NBA? After my sophomore year, we won a championship. What stopped you from doing that? I think um, I felt like I owed it to my parents. My parents have valued education so much. And it's something I fight with as I've gotten older because I wonder how my life would have been if I did leave and I probably would have been the first pick to play with the Washington Wizards and I would have played with Michael Jordan. That was during the latter part of his career. I wonder how being around somebody like that would have schooled me to the game, whereas I stayed. I did get my education and it's incredible, uh, but I really I went to a young team and then I made a horrific mistake because uh, I didn't really have any guidance. I was guiding myself in uncharted territory. But I will say having my degree has been a long lasting greatness in my life because I can always tap into the alumni base and it's something that I'm able to talk to about the power and privilege of education. So when you finally decide to go to the NBA, which is after your junior year, your player of the year, um, you're the number two overall draft pick. Now your life is considerably changing from a finance standpoint. Drastically different. Drastically different. My How- mom, like my dad worked for Amex, but my dad didn't spend. My dad was very frugal. Uh-huh. My d- mom didn't give my dad money, right? So my dad didn't give my mom money. So my mom would like put stuff on layaway for me like two years out. Mm-hmm. And by the way, like playing basketball, like, you play with people. Like I, all I did was I stayed with my friends. My parents are great at this. Like, go stay with your friend Justice. And I would sleep on the floor with my friend Justice and his three brothers, right? Like this is what you did. Right? And for me, it was always weird going to that environment, being with them, understanding that's normal, and then having my world, because my normal was a little bit different. You know, my dad had a job that paid him six figures. But understanding that and then getting drafted, it still changed things for us. Because yeah. it went from my dad making six figures, low six figures, and my mom making $40,000 a year as a school teacher, to all of a sudden, yeah, now I'm making $7 million. Mm. And somebody just hands it to you. They hand it to you. And the hard part about this whole thing, Hawk, is that nobody prepares you for all these outside people trying to come into your life. Right. And a lot of these outside people can be competent, but I came from a family that they seemed like we knew what we were doing. We still didn't know what we were doing. Well, that was my next question. How prepared did you feel when you got all this money? How can you be prepared when you have, I had friends that offered me money. I had friends that said to me, if you come with our agency, I get broken off. And this helps out our agency, and my agent's a really great dude. I had friends that worked for different accounting firms that said, you should come with us because we can save you this amount of taxes, but you just got the job, though, right? But you want me to come with your accounting firm, but how long have you been working with them? Do you even know them? No, I don't know them that well, but I know that you know they do it right. 
they do right by people. But like for me, I didn't even know I didn't even know the right questions to ask at 17 years old. Right. I wasn't ready to make millions of dollars, so it was hard deciphering who's on my team for what reason, and then who has their hands in my pocket, right? And who gets broken off if I sign with certain people. So, how did your attitude towards money change, or did it change? I just had to start studying it. Yeah. I I always felt like I paid attention but I never made it my priority to study it, to understand about, am I gonna open up an LLC? And like, it's really funny. My whole life, all I want to do is be a millionaire. All I would say in different rap songs, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna be my own CEO, I'm gonna do that. I'm a CEO of what? Am I gonna form an LLC? Am I gonna form an S Corp? Oh, I get taxed in every city I play in? Oh, I'm in the highest tax bracket? Okay, oh wait, I have to pay my, my agent a 4% fee? Is that negotiable? Wait, I gotta pay my accountant a fee at the end of all this for doing all the work? Like so, understanding that oh, if I want to make my if I want to give my parents money, I get gift taxed over anything that's ten thousand dollars. Oh, I have to make my parents a CEO or CMO of my company to funnel money to them the correct way. Am I going to give them responsibility? They're my mom, and my dad, but you have to have a responsibility if you're going to have that title. Or do I hire somebody else that can watch over what they do? So I, I think getting all that information it was overwhelming. Yeah, trying to understand all that, man, because um, everything was happening like that. Who did you look to for guidance? Like, was that something you were just like, I'm just going to put this on my own shoulders? Or was there somebody in the position to kind of help you navigate these new waters? I, my agent, Bill Duffy. Yeah. My agent, Bill Duffy. But there was also a weirdness to this because my dad then became the CEO of my company. And like I said, my dad never gave my mom money to spend. So my dad was very, very, very frugal. And my dad literally monitored everything I spent my money on. And I think overall that kind of made me rebel because it's like, hold on a second, this is my money. Like this is, like, I'm, my, I'm a man now. Yeah. I'm 18 years old, like I'm like 20 years old thinking like, I'm a man now. Like I'm taking care of you guys. So there's a power flip to this whole scenario too that people don't talk about. Absolutely. Because your parents are there for you now, but all of a sudden I give you $10 million and you're taking care of your parents. You can look at your parents and be like, Yo, I'm the boss. I'm the boss now. Right. I'm the breadwinner. Y'all gonna do what I tell y'all to do. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's crazy, but that's how life works, especially when you're young. Especially when you're young. All right, so after your rookie season in the NBA, walk us through the accident and how that changed. Walk. Yeah, Give me the a glass course of, of your life. For that. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't have been on my bike in the first place. In your contract, there's certain things that you can't do where they can void your contract. You've experienced this on the yep. football field. One of those things was you weren't allowed to ride motorcycles. Now, our head coach, Bill Cartwright, rode motorcycles. He would go on bike rides with friends when we go on West Coast trips. And a lot of guys at that time had motorcycles. So for me, the motorcycle was my way of saying I'm my own man. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I didn't feel like I had great chemistry with my teammates because once again, I was that person who was a little bit confused. I didn't fit in because I graduated from Duke. I was a goody two-shoe boy. Jalen Rose, who's like my brother now, made a documentary about this when the Fab Five, like he thought of me like Uncle Tom, like the right. same kind of guys, right? Like, so I was alone a lot. I didn't have that same camaraderie I had on the collegiate level with my teammates. So that led me to get a bike, man. And I literally was with my agent, uh, a guy who was my marketing director, Drove down to this guy's house, went over making my website, was driving back, and I was on my bike, and I clicked the bike into neutral as I was coming towards the stop sign, and I revved the engine once really loud. The engine was fine. The bike sounded good. I wasn't wearing a helmet. I wasn't wearing any protective gear because there was no helmet law in Chicago. 
And once, once again, the reasons you justify doing things when you're younger, well, I can get hurt walking down the street. That's right. how I thought. Right. Rev the engine the second time, louder than the first, it was fine. And then in the middle of my third rev, I just heard the bike go click, click, and out of nowhere, I popped a wheelie. And I wish my reaction would have been to let go, but I wanted to control everything in my life around that certain time. The decisions I made for my parents, the decisions I made for me, what kind of businesses I was doing, what was happening on the court. I'm in control, which is a false illusion. And me wanting to be in control reacted quick enough to grab the handlebars as the bike was throwing me backwards, and I pulled down the throttle even more. The bottom wheel spun out. I look at the speedometer, I'm going 65, 70 miles per hour. By the time I look up, I'm headed towards a utility pole. I try to turn the bike at the last second. I can't get out of the way. Clip the whole left side of my body on a bike. Then proceed to, it felt as if somebody was pouring cold water all over the lower portion of my body. It's a damaged feeling to have your legs touch, your hands touch your legs, but your legs can't feel your hands touch it back. And it was at that moment, man, I knew I was bleeding internally. And I started literally banging. My, my chest was on the pavement, the street. But my hips, I was laying on my stomach on the pavement. But my hips, Hawk, were up on the curb, on the grassy knoll area, as if I was laying on my side, knee on top of knee. And I started banging my fist on the ground at that given moment, just screaming, I threw it all away. I fucking threw it all away. At the top of my lungs. I just felt it, man. Ugh, I felt it. And then, um, you know, then you go to the hospital and um, you wake up and I have a tube in my throat. I have metal pins in my knee. I have metal pins in my pelvis. And um, that was the day my life really started. So in your mind, I can imagine how incredibly painful that is, not just physically, just emotionally, mentally. Here you are fighting for the thing that you have fought for your whole life, which is your career. One moment I'm on a billboard going down I-90 in Chicago, staying in an apartment next to Oprah's, mm -hmm. sitting in the same locker room Michael Jordan had, same locker Michael Jordan had. The next moment I'm being told they're not sure if I'll ever be able to walk again. Like, that's humbling, man. Like, that put everything, like, as fast as people get things, as fast as people can lose things. Mm. I try to look at everything and try to stay even kill about life in general. Some people are like, oh, I did it, I'm killing it. I'm like, all right. Like, well, what's going to happen on a rainy day? Yeah. You, know, you got to be prepared for that. And that's, like, that set the tone for the rest of my life. How, how long did it take you to, to start thinking about it in that way? Like, to think, okay. 17 years and ongoing. I'm mm. 38 years old now, and I'm still working. Still working still towards working. it. Um, it... You know, to learn how to walk again, to learn how to run again. I severed my pubic my pubic symphysis 13 inches. So, like, when a woman has a child, the pubic symphysis splits, right? Mine split larger than that. So I had no functionality down here for years. Uh, I tore every ligament in my knee, completely dislocated my knee, and it gave me drop foot with my left foot. So it's amazing. I've had 13 surgeries. One of the surgeries... The tendon that you use, like if I were using my right foot, the tendon I will use to pull my right foot inward this way, they cut that tendon off the bone, reattach that tendon to the top of my foot. So when I walk with my left foot, I think about pulling my foot inward, and that pulls my foot up barely enough for me to clear my gait. So I had to retrain myself psychologically how to walk again, yet alone trying to come back on the basketball court. But it, the hardest part wasn't physical, 
Hawk, right? The hardest part was psychological, man. Dealing with people recognizing me and trying to talk to me about the worst mistake I made in my life. People literally on the streets in New York coming up to me and saying, oh, you, oh, you, not, you, you, you got torn up in that motorcycle accident, right? Damn, man, what happened? You'd be like, yo, word? Like somebody hand me some baby powder. I'm about to slap it. <laughs> like, but, and how that made me angry for a long time, man, years, right? Yeah. I was depressed. Like, and then you see guys like LeBron or other guys, D. Wade, all these are guys. Like, I felt like I could compete with D. Rose, who then comes to Chicago after me. Man, I remember watching the Bulls draft Kirk Heimrich in my hospital bed with pins in my leg and pins in my and watching the Bulls with the 13th pick select Kirk Heimrich. And I'm sitting there like, damn, I was just... I was just a number two pick like a year ago, just a year ago, like that, man. So I, I think it's something that you always talk yourself through. You always talk about how lucky of an opportunity you have to be here and make the most out of what you experience. Okay, so as you know, branching out is all about athletes doing something unexpected or extraordinary after their sports careers end. Everyone can point to at least one defining moment in their life where just one thing going differently would have changed everything. And for Jay, that defining branching out moment came years after his accident and rehabilitation. He faced his feelings of defeat, flipped the narrative, and embraced it all. So at what point did that energy start to shift for you? Where you started to use that to say, okay, here's how I'm going to reset. Here is how I'm going to take this negative and turning it to the positive, to the Jay Williams we see today. I'll be real with you, man. I, I've had two suicide attempts. Uh, the first one was about a month after I got out of the hospital. I spent about two and a half months in the hospital, failed. Um, tried to cut my wrist. And the second one, I tried to overdose on Oxycontin. I was addicted to Oxycontin for a long time because I needed to take it because of the, the nerve regeneration in my leg. It felt like somebody was stabbing me in my leg for about a year and a half, two years, any given time, for 30 seconds or up to five minutes. Um, and it was after the second time I got on the phone with Charlie Grantham, and I just, you could hear it in somebody's voice, man. I just felt like I was, like there was nothing for me to do. Yeah. And he was like, you know what, man? Like, get yourself up and use this to your advantage. And I think it was the first time in my life, because for a long time, Hawk, I always be like, damn, why me? Like, what did I do to deserve to, to get hurt or to spend months in the hospital? or to have people ridicule me or beat me up on social media or every time they disagree with me say, you hit your head too hard in that motorcycle accident. What did I do to deserve that? And also, man, that narrative, I think I just found it. I was like, oh, if I can change that from why me to, damn, why not me? Mm -hmm. Like maybe I'm built for this. Maybe my shoulders are built to carry this burden. Maybe I can turn this into a gift for others. And then I started, talking about my story just randomly to friends. And I saw like other friends had their own accident in some form or fashion. My lawyer, his wife just divorced him randomly. He got served at work. My other friend, she lost a child midway through her pregnancy. And I'm sitting there like, damn, okay, I'm being selfish thinking that this is the worst thing to happen to me. And I'm seeing all these other people, they've had bad things happen to them. So I think from that point on, I was like, oh, I'm going to start using this to my advantage. And I started to spin the narrative from that moment on. So from there... In your mind, everything changes. You're changing the narrative. You're starting to take your experience and what you thought was a negative and spin it and starting to affect other people's lives. Yes. Financially, hmm. how did your Woo! life change? Uh, that, was, that was different, man. 
that was different for me. You know, you go from I got my second year of my NBA contract, which Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Bulls, can't thank him enough for that. They kept me on their insurance for all my surgeries, so I didn't come out of pocket for that. But the game had changed, man. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't living by myself. I lived on the Lower East Side with three roommates because wow. I wasn't making any money. Right. So, yeah, that $5,000, $6,000 apartment, I couldn't do that anymore. I was just pulling money from something that was going to support me for the rest of my life. How was I supposed to do that? So, lived on the Lower East Side, and then I got, I got my real first gig, and I got my, my first real job. <laughs> and I started doing, I've been doing TV for 13 years, man. I started doing TV for ESPNU for $40,000 a year. ESPNU. I went from making $7 million a year to $40,000 a year. And it was the best thing to ever happen to me. Why is that? Because my tell, I went on the road. I'm in Oxford. How many of y'all have been to Oxford, Mississippi? See, exactly. <laughs> no, no disrespect to Oxford, Mississippi. It's different. Right. Okay. Being from the Northeast, I was like, oh, we, we down here. This is different. <laughs> um, and I remember I, I called the game. Never called a game before. I felt like I did really bad. And I was like, you know what, man? I'm going to go out and I'm going to treat myself. I'm going to treat myself to a good dinner. I don't even know where I ate. And I ordered two glasses of wine. I got a steak. I got a good little appetizer. And I spent about $135 on my meal. Right, and after my meal was over, I went back. I got on the plane. I take I had to take like a connecting flight. I was sitting in the back of planes. You imagine I'm on, walking through a plane. People are like, yo, that's that's Jay, that's Jay Williams. I'm walking through first class. Like, nah, that ain't, that ain't me. <laughs> and I'm walking all the way to the back of the plane to sit in the middle seat, right, and just sit there. And that's where I was doing my work. And I got back, and I remember ESPN was like, all right, time to fill out your expenses. I'm like, expenses. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get expenses. And they're like, oh, you get $40 a day for food. And I was like, oh, oof. I just spent $100 more than that on my dinner. We didn't even talk about like, what I spent on lunch and breakfast and the random snacks. Like, and they're like, you know how guys in the NBA gambled a little bit, like playing games with guys yep, and stuff, yep. hanging around? Like, I'm like, yo, I just, I can't, I can't do this. I need to recalibrate. And it just, it changed everything in my life. And I was working 13, 14 hour days, man. Like, I would go there, do a game, come back, come to the studio, work in studio from 6 until 1 o'clock in the morning, drive my car, sleep at the airport, take a connecting flight to a Oxford, Mississippi, do that game, fly back to work again. I was like, yo, okay. I thought work was like getting up 500 jump shots. Like, I had no idea what real work was. But I think that process of doing that for four or five years, Hawk, right, I was like, I started to like it. I started to actually love it. And I was like, oh, like... This is the real grind I heard my mom, my dad, and people who had real jobs talk about. And I was like, okay, like, cool. Like, and I started to dedicate myself to my craft. And I also started dedicating myself to my new age, my new lifestyle of finances. And I was like, okay, I'm going to save money. And then I started like, all right. And then I started using TV as the same platform that I wanted to use basketball for. And that's how I found it. The amazing part about it is when I hear you talk about your basketball career and what in your mind wasn't. Right. To, to everybody who knows Jay Williams and when we see you on TV, we see you in all the different business ventures and everything you have going on. There are so few basketball players that have played long careers that would have ever had that impact or ever been able to have the face card that you even have now. There are people who have no idea that you played basketball. Do you realize that? 
That means you call me old. No, it's not yes. that. It's it's the <laughs> fact that it's so rare that someone is so great at multiple things the way that you are on television and the way that you are speaking and motivating that they don't even realize that you were one of the best basketball players in the entire country. So it's it's just incredible that hearing your experience and what you went through and how that will and does motivate other people. And for you personally, after you go through the grind of figuring out, man, I could really take this TV thing and this media personality to the next level, for you, when does it click for you to start branching that out into other business ventures and opportunities that you could see yourself taking advantage of? Well, I've been doing it for a while. Yeah. Um, I just didn't promote it. I didn't feel, I never, it's really funny. Being on TV, I see a lot of people that yearn to be on air, that yearn to say, look at me, look at what I'm doing. But doing TV, I, I already had that basketball-wise. I didn't feel the need to try to do that business-wise. Mm -hmm. um, I always thought, and it's the reason why I named my holding company Clandestine Ventures, right? Mm -hmm. I never want you to see me coming. Mm. Like, I think that's what real wealth is to me. Like, being able to have equity or different stakes in different businesses. And you'd be like, yo, Jay had a piece of word? I didn't know that. How come nobody publicized that? Like, you know, why I need to publicize it all the time? Mm. But I, I think I, we found the sweet spot. You know, obviously watching what Braun and Mav have done with Uninterrupted, this platform here, what they've been able to do with Spring Hill, producing content has always been cool for me. And I think combining powers with Rich Kleiman and Kevin Durant, who's, you know, in Brooklyn, and actually building a vertical for ESPN about sports business, like, so many athletes, man, are so competent and so in tune. And this whole stereotype that we have about, oh, well, he's a basketball player. And I, I like we, we sat down with Deshaun Watson the other day. And D. Watson, like he owns equity stake in this company called Rally. And essentially what Rally does is they're like the New York Stock Exchange for antique objects. Mm -hmm. So if you have a Rolex, they come, they insure your Rolex. They leave it in a safe place, safeguarded place for a couple years, and they allow people to invest in the Rolex. And then a private bidder comes along and says, I'll buy the Rolex for 5X, and they, they make 5X their money. And he makes 5X his money. So, like, that's Deshaun Watson, right? And Deshaun's like, God came from the hood. And he's yeah. like, now I'm playing for the Texans. I have this platform. And this is how I want to continue to build out the Deshaun Watson business. So, for me, like, I hear that because I'm doing an interview with him. I'm like, Yo, there's my, there might be two or three things that we can all collectively do together with myself, Kevin, who knows, Brown might be involved. And my thing is you come to the table with different business ventures aligned with other athletes who understand what it is. Even if they don't, you take the time to explain it to them, and that's how you have power. That's how you have movement. And especially as a young African-American male, I can't tell you how many people still look over me and are like, oh, well, you play basketball. I'm like, yeah, I still play, I play basketball. Right. It's cool to think of me like that. Right. Thank you. I love it. So you sneak up on them, essentially. All day. So tell me this. All right. So, so now you talked about the boardroom platform you started with ESPN. You recently signed a new deal at ESPN. What other things do you have going on that you're excited about? You have a, a restaurant here in New York? Yeah. Uh, I have a restaurant in New York. Um, I've been able, I've been, it's been fascinating for me to see. I wouldn't advise the restaurant industry to be something that people should invest in. I don't think that's the best move. But, you know, for me, it, it's a very small, intimate place. We have a lot of friends in New Jersey help us with the construction costs, so we got great deals to kind of you know, maneuver that. I invested in an analytics business. I think analytics are fascinating right now. I see all these antiquated companies trying to pivot uh, and don't understand how analytics are imperative to their business. Uh, you know, People are now hiring 
like you know, a CDO. I don't know if people even know what a CDO is, a chief data officer, you know, for like three or four million dollars. So it's like, oh, we're gonna hire a CDO, we're gonna hire a CTO, a CIO. Um, and so essentially what we do is a bunch of consultants. We're a CDO as a service. Um, so that's been doing really well. I invested in an insurance company uh, off Epic Insurance, which is really doing well. Uh, we're about to launch that coming up. I've been able to do a lot of cool things, man. But it's all things that are very authentic to me. Mm -hmm. right? like, I had to learn about insurance when you have 13 surgeries. I'm like, hold up a second. Right. How much does it cost for a knee replacement? How much can I use insurance for? My mom had two kidney transplants. Each can transplant costs around $125,000. If you don't have insurance, you're paying that out of pocket, depending on what your premium is. So people don't, under really, don't really understand that world. It's not cool. It's not in until you have to go through it. Right. So my thing is those are industries that will always be needed because people don't even know they need it until they need it. So tell me, on this side of things, after going through everything you've gone through, building the empire, the foundation that you've built both financially uh, and in the public eye, what is your version of a national championship now for Jay Williams? So I was online the other day and I heard this interesting debate between two people about whether Nipsey Hussle was a legend or not. Mm. And one guy took this stance. He was like, well, like, Nipsey isn't Dre. Like, Dre's albums went platinum. Dre, and he started naming all these different things that Dre did from albums sold while he was alive. He's like, that's a legend, right? Mm -hmm. And this other guy came on and was like, well, look at the impact that Nipsey had after death, right? Like, got 10 million followers, whatever X amount of followers he got via social. Albums went platinum, like, legacy. That's important to me. It's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about the boardroom. Like I wanna, I wanna be able to have conversations with kids in Harlem, with kids in Brooklyn about what businesses they can get involved in. Like I, I think we're at this stage now where it's cool to be in intelligent. It's no longer, well, you're an Uncle Tom, you're a sellout. No, this is how we empower ourselves to mm -hmm. be different. This is how we build something different. So when I look at somebody like Bob Johnson, that's the ultimate goal for me. How am I giving back ultimately to my community? I mean, I, we did a docu-series with Bron and Mav called Best Shot. Absolutely. It was where we, went in, we went into Newark, man. And I, like, oh, let's give money. I'm like, no, nah, let's give my time equity. And we took kids out of Newark, New Jersey. 14 kids had never been out, outside the city of Newark, New Jersey. And we took them down to Duke. And they're like, yo, why don't people have their bikes chained here? I'm like, because not everybody's trying to steal your bike. Yo, why are people saying hi to me? Because people just say hi down south. Like, you think I can come to school here? You're damn right you can come to school here. You just have to apply yourself and think that you have to envision yourself having an opportunity to be at a place like this because it is possible, but you have to see it in order to think it. And so that's what I want the ultimate Jay Williams legacy to be. That's all for this season of Needing Though the Podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Jay Williams' story felt like the perfect way to close out the season. So thank you all for sticking around and make sure you stay subscribed so you get a notification when we drop a new episode. Thank you to our partner for this show, Chase. Head over to Chase.com to see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, TD Say Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man always told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.